Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you're in the right place. My guest this episode combines his successful Major League Baseball career with a master's degree in sports psychology and counseling from Boston University. Despite two arm surgeries and several demotions back to the minors, he persevered going on to win 110 games and make an all-star team. After retiring from baseball, he transitioned to a mental skills and performance coach We worked for three of the most historic MLB franchises. He went on to also work with players such as John Lester, Rich Hill, Andrew Miller, and Anthony Rizzo, among many others, as well as providing mental skills for a number of college teams. He's also the author of the book, 90% Mental. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Bob Tewksbury. Hi Tyler, I'm good. It's a uh, 30, as we tape this, it's a 39 degree day in Wells, Maine on December 21st. So that's a pretty good day. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it for the holidays. It's just a, a tad, it's about, it's going to get really cold here in Colorado this week. So I think we're supposed yeah, to Yeah, it's, it's coming. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Uh, but with that, the holiday. So hopefully some hope and gratitude and joy and all those things. But Thank uh, you. Back at you. Yeah. Yeah. Joyful to have you join us. And I guess I kind of wanted to start. I know your, your baseball career is kind of one, one great chapter. And then I just finished reading your book, 90% Mental, not too long ago. And um, it was really curious of what made you want to kind of pivot and get into kind of the mental performance side and, and really stay involved with baseball that way the last two decades. Yeah, it was totally by chance. Um, I, I, when I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I stopped playing other than I knew I was going to go back and finish my undergrad. Um, I had two years left in my undergrad work um, and I knew that I was going to finish that. It was really important to for me to do that personally as well as kind of show the kids that school's important and you know they were god they were in like second and third first and third grade and I was like dad's going to school so you know everyone's <laughs> going to school today but um so the Red Sox hired me as a as a pitching consultant um for a lack of a better word and you know I just wanted to um the, the goal was to be a mentor to young pitchers uh, at that time in AAA and just kind of get my foot. You know, they wanted me to be the pitching coach in, in rookie ball, and I didn't want to be in a coaching position every day. Yeah. Um, if I was going to commit to that, I would have kept playing until I couldn't play. Um, so it was during that time. It was, I think, did that for a couple of years, and I it was a – a circumstance that happened um, when I went to Pawtucket to see the AAA team, uh, one of the pitchers confided in me that he had a cocaine issue. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I called the uh, players association. I, uh, you know, so we get to talk to the team EAP. No, I don't want to talk to the team. We got to No, I don't want to do that. So I called the players association and, got a hold of the medical director in New York and he said, if you can get the player to 
New York City tomorrow morning. I can see him at eight o'clock. Mm -hmm. So I drove from Pawtucket to New York City, got him in for his appointment and drove him back to Pawtucket um, before he had to be at the field the next day. And uh, he ended up getting some treatment. Um, and obviously the team found out at some point and they weren't too happy that I didn't direct him in that uh, to the team resources. But nonetheless, it made me realize that, you know, I had, I had more to learn than my prior playing experience to be helpful to players. And, um, and the second, so this is twofold. The second part of that's being in spring training and meeting a guy that was uh, named Doug Gardner. And Doug has gone on to work with NFL and his own private practice. And, uh, but he had completed his uh, doctorate in sports psych from BU. And he was working with the Red Sox as a consultant uh, sports site consultant. And, and this was 2002 ish. So really hadn't mental skills hadn't really come on board yet. Sure. And um, so anyway, long story short, um, I'm like, well, if, if he's doing this and I have a play, you know, he was a soccer player and, and um, I have a baseball background, maybe I should pursue this field. So I waited two more years uh, before I applied to Boston University. So at I was 40 years old. Um, I went back to graduate school, 40, I think 42 years old. I went back to grad school and uh, got my master's in sports psychology and started the Red Sox mental skills program in 2004. Um, so that's the long-winded version. So it's totally by accident. I had no idea that that's something that I would want to do. I think, uh, you know, part, part of the might not be accident was your career beforehand. I think, uh, like I mentioned to you, kind of in the football world, I think sometimes when we, whether it's psychologists or mental skills and it has this taboo, but did you find once it really did serve you well, your past experiences and going through, you know, the things you go through the minor leagues and the major leagues and the ups and downs that it helped you really be able to connect with the players authentically? In a different oh, no way than question. maybe than, yeah. than, than non-players. No question. And I even hear that now. I mean, you, you don't have to have played uh, professional baseball. You don't have to have played a, that particular sport to work in mental skills. Sure. But it, it doesn't hurt. And, um, uh, and you know, to for players to know that you've had the same thoughts and feelings that they have normalizes it. To know... You know, I had two surgeries. I get demoted seven times. I get traded. Uh, I got released, you know. And when they hear those stories, there's a little connection there that, you know, without those experiences, you wouldn't have. So it definitely helps. What's interesting is um, another one of my mentors is was Harvey Dorfman. Mm -hmm. And Harvey wrote a trilogy of books, um, ABCs of Pitching, The Mental Game of Baseball, um, the mental keys to hitting. And Harvey told me when I got into this field, he said, your experience is going to be a blessing and a curse. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? How could it be a curse? Um, but he was right, because what happens is a lot of, um, and, and I saw this working in pro baseball for 20 years as a, as a mental skills coach, but 
the players rely on their past experiences, which are their experiences, but aren't necessarily um, something that you see from 30,000 feet. They're their experiences. And so when you learn the educational background of the origins of self-talk or negative thinking or, um, you know, controlling, you know, um, your breathing or arousal or whatever, um, there's a science behind it. And I think that's really important to have. So what I had to learn back to Harvey's point, what I had to learn is that I had to take the baseball cap off and put the mental skills cap on when I talked to players, because I had to, I had to show them, you know, 30,000 feet, not just my experiences. Sure. I love that. Um, I'd written down one of the questions you mentioned in your book. I think it's in, you're talking about perfection in chapter six. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Harvey might've asked you this. Or I can't remember how it came up, but uh, he asked the question is where he said, do you know anyone that's perfect? Yeah. Right. And, it, and I just love that, that question. Can you talk a little bit about why, you know, having some processes and routine is going to be a lot more serving to our performance than striving to for perfection? Yeah, I mean, and Harvey would go on to say, then, do you know anyone that is? And he was talking with uh, Kevin Brown, I think it's in Harvey's book. Um, and and Kevin Brown said no. And then Harvey's reply was, well, why are you trying to be the first one? Uh, <laughs> and then Harvey Harvey's other line was, um, you know, if you run the go into the bath bathroom and run the tub and get four inches of water in the tub, and if you can step in the tub and not touch the bottom, uh, then you're perfect. <laughs> so, um, and I just had this conversation with a golfer. He's on the Corn Ferry Tour and about perfection and and how it's just a never-ending cycle of of it's just it's it's unreasonable. It's it creates. Um, you know, anger and frustration and depression. It, it, if you're striving to be perfect, then you're missing the boat on the experience. So I think having a, you know, I go and exercise with the players of what things can you control? What things can't you control? Focus on your controllables and it, you know, con- con- continuing to come back to that, um, you know, focusing on their strengths um, uh, and relying on their preparation as, the way to trust their confidence, you know, that, okay, look, I may be a little like, you know, when you talk to Justin Sua, you know, the, the, I mean, he made the comment, you know, you don't have to feel good to play good, you know, and a lot of people think that they do. And, but right. if you don't feel good, you trust your preparation uh, and they trust the process and, you know, and then you, and then you adjust It's constant adjustment. Uh, another thing he kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but um, it, your book talks about, I, I love kind of, you know, when you came in as a, as a player, how taboo mental skills were <laughs> and, and, you know, and then obviously by 2004, when you're working with the Red Sox, and then you look at today where most of the teams have a, a small, you know, a handful of staff doing it. Um, why do you think, I guess, we're going to go Charlie Marr three parts here. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what kind of, you know, broke down that wall of it being taboo. 
And then kind of, you know, in that second phase as, as you were around, uh, accelerated it. And then where do you kind of see the future of it in baseball? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, when I came up, I remember um, my wife worked, my girlfriend then, my wife now, um, she worked in the hospital environment and, you know, very fluid, open discussion. She was in the in the administration. And I remember my rookie year, Pinella, you know, he didn't like me. I didn't throw hard enough. You know, I had to, he had to pick me on the team because I pitched 20 scoreless innings in spring training. <laughs> but, um, and she goes, just go talk to him. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? I'm going to go talk to the manager. So, um, so anyway, there was no resources to talk to people. And I think, I think, you know, there's still, uh, there's still some hesitancy from uh, people with the team trusting their mental skills. I was a former player for a long time, as you noted, and I still had players that didn't trust me because I was paid by the team. So the fact of the matter is that anyone in this position, uh, you hope to gain the trust of the players because the relationships are really important. But there's always that little layer that's there. That said, uh, I think, you know, the players that are coming in the big leagues now um, are players that, you know, came up in a, in an age uh, at a time where mental skills and mental skills coaching was, um, you know, starting in the youth levels or in college, they, it became more, they became more aware of it. So it wasn't this foreign, strange thing, number one. And number two, that, a lot of the old school players left, you know, the, the, the grizzly old veterans who, you know, made it tough for young players. Uh, they retired. And then another wave of players came in. Um, where do I think it's going? I think it's, um, you know, it, it can, the field continues to grow. Um, and I think that with advances in, in more science and, you know, fMRIs. I mean, I'd really love for someone to find out why the yips really happen. Uh, I think it's there's hypotheses. People have done research, but I don't think anyone really knows. It's so multifaceted. But um, and I just think with you know with that comes budgets, and I think that the the dilemma is going to be if the teams want to invest in science and future science, they can make more significant inroads. Um, using that technology to help players and mental skills. But, you know, uh, you know, you worked with a team, you know, the, but, yeah. you know, the money goes to the players and, and not the minor leagues or, you know, equipment. So. Sure. sure. Reading your book, I really kind of, you know, acquired my own new appreciation for your resilience and grit throughout your career and your journey. Um, you talked about the, the mental skills you acquired and, and situations you put those to use. What, what was some kind of that fuel that fueled your grit and resilience in your career? Yeah, I, I, I just, I laugh at the, um, there's a scene in the officer and a gentleman where he says, I got no place else to go. And that was it. You know, my, I, my parents were both high school dropouts. Uh, you know, they were teenagers when I was born. Um, you know, I didn't have anything to go to. So it wasn't like I uh, had something to fall back on. So that made it easy. You know, I think that, you know, those challenges that 
are difficult as a youth, you know, they kind of create some things for you as an adult that are beneficial and a work ethic, um, you know, relentlessly pursuing the dream. Um, you know, I mean, there, there were moments that I didn't think that was going to happen, but, um, I had some good physical therapists. Um, I had some good doctors and I did the work and, um, it's, I have a I have a, a saying that I use when I speak to spoke to schools for years after I stopped playing and I had the saying have a dream have a plan do the work mm -hmm. and that was my dream was to be a ball player my plan was to go to college um, I did that and then you know kept doing the work so but I appreciate yeah it's um, I appreciate your comments on that because it's people don't see what's behind the scenes of success. They just see success and everyone's got a path. Everyone's got a different path. Yeah. No. Um, having my opportunities at the ballpark, I got glimpses to that. Um, you know, you see the, the people, uh, players beating you to the office when you're just uh, an employee sometimes in their <laughs> games at seven at night. Um, yeah. Right. The work. Um, one of the things you, you bring up in there, I'd love you to just kind of talk about and explain. I, I don't I remember maybe Ken, Ken Revisa uh, heard it from through him, but the uh, prayer, perfect and primal. We talked about perfection. Can you talk a little bit about those three modes um, that we can get into as athletes? Yeah, yeah. Ken Ken was and he he's another mentor. He's uh, passed away, unfortunately, not long ago. Um, well, he talked about. Perfect. He made it in reference to pitching. There's there's primal pitching, prayer pitching, and perfect pitching. But you can make that case in anything, right? Like you said. So I think, you know, primal is just trying harder. You know, sport, most sport, unless you're an offensive lineman, most sport is not a linear progression with effort. Um, the harder you try, the worse you do in most sports. So being primal doesn't work um and then prayer prayer is just like not trusting yourself it's hoping and um you know it's like people say well i hope i win the lottery well but did you buy a ticket you know and even if you bought a ticket you, got, you don't have a big chance but at least you bought a ticket so uh you know prayer pitching is and, and prayer performance is not trusting your preparation. It's not, it's being unconfident and, and hoping for something good to happen. You know, and in reference to baseball, there's a lot of times where, I mean, I threw pitches in all three of those, you know, my last game as a Yankee, when Pinella came out to the mound and told me if I walked the next guy, I was out of the game. I threw the next four pitches as hard as I've ever thrown them because I was so pissed off. And I walked the guy and I was out of the game. And three days later, I was traded. But um, but I threw a lot of pitches, you know, with prayer, like, oh, I hope I hope this is a strike or and I think every pitcher has. Um, they'd be lying if they said they didn't. But you also know that, you know, I, I always tell the pitchers that the ball knows, you know, there's an, a there's a negative, you know, negative ions or inertia or whatever it is. That, but if I throw this confidently that I'm going to get you out, they pop it up. I mean, Tom Pagnozzi told me the year I made the all-star team, he said, I don't know how you did it. You know, I won 16 games, had an area of 2.1 and 
Pag said, you know how many balls you throw right down the middle that they just pop up? There you go. Here, hit it. I dare yeah. you to hit it. And yeah. so the ball knows. <laughs> I think, too, it's a, a – we always think about the worst thing that could happen. And then I always try to tell athletes, like, well, what's the best thing that could happen? And there's a lot of outcomes that are in the middle that, just like you said, ball goes in play, probably going to be an out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Was, if, if, was, if they don't put it in play, you know, I, I'd rather put it in play and have someone have a chance to catch it. But, you know, that's true. Everyone, you know, it's catastrophizing, right? It's it's a limited thinking capacity that everyone, and it's kind of how we're built. If you get into the, you know, caveman yeah. ages, it's better to think about what could go wrong than what could go right. But, but as it relates to sport, you know, um, yeah, you have to think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make this pitch on the outside corner. I'm going to hit this shot where I need to hit it. And if you don't, you respond to it. But if you if you're out there going, oh, my God, I hope I hit it. You know, you, I, I said in the book, a negative thought never leads to a positive result. Yeah, yeah I love that. Negative thought never leads to a positive result. Uh, another thing I learned about the book is this. You even stated about how it begins with breath and the book ends with breath. Mm. Talk about, you know, the often, the oft overlooked constant in our life um, that can be so helpful when we put intention behind it. Yeah. I have to give credit to the co-author Scott Miller on that. He, um, the way that he weaved that in was, was really nice, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the ability to to slow things down only happens through our breath to change our physiology. But so many people, so many athletes, people don't use it. You know, uh, we could all, I mean, this is, these are all as, as I'm sure you, you would probably agree with this, but these are life skills. These aren't mental skills for sport. These are life skills. So if your flight's delayed, what do you do? How do you respond? If you're stuck in traffic, what do you do if someone's going really slow in front of you? What do you do? You have a choice to respond, um, but the breath is what starts that. The breath starts with, okay, I just need to chill out here, and you need to take a few deep breaths and slow down. And um, you know, and and I think that it's just not utilized a lot. Um, I think you know, I I know I talked about it in the book that part of what I talk to the athletes about now is. You know, you can't not think negative things, but you can refocus and reframe them. So if I had a negative thought, I would delete, you know, I had to be aware of it. I had to delete it. I would swipe the pitching rubber or tap my leg with my glove. It's like, get out of here. Then I would take a breath. And then I would say, focus on the task. All right, throw a good pitch down and away or whatever. So, so the breath was a big part of that. And um, I use it now on the golf course. You know, I see my buddies that don't do it. Um, I see them use negative thinking like, well, I didn't want to leave it short. And I always say, well, you didn't, you know, or, you know, yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to um, put it too hard. Well, you sure didn't, you know, so it's yeah. really fun to, to, to be the, the little man, so to speak, like I talk about in the book to my, my teammates, my golf mates. Yeah. My mom was a, a college golfer in first class of Title IX, and I was too primal as a kid for golf. <laughs> so wasn't, uh, yeah, pushed too hard. But uh, yeah. um, you talked about reference kind of the, the 
thoughts and the self-talk. Sometimes we get on the golf course, we get when we're competing. Um, you talk a lot about in the book, you know, the importance of having anchor statements. Um, mm-hmm. And I like, I like how you get into the, even the, the next kind of deep dive beyond that with uh, the tracks that like Rizzo would use, the, the kind of mm-hmm. audio. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of having the anchor statements to go to and then, you know, the functionality of having kind of, you know, an auditory system pre-game to implement those? Yep. Yeah, no, I think the, um, the anchor statements are, um, you know, part of what I talked about with, with, uh, you know, that process of, of self-talk was the task, you know, you focus on the task of throwing the ball down and away, but my anchor statement was just like on the side, because, when you throw a bullpen as a pitcher on the side, there's no judgment, there's no umpire, there's no, you know, and it's free and easy. So coming up with something that um, helps keep you thinking about the worst thing that could happen um, because that's where our mind goes. So, you know, smooth and easy, or, you know, my golf swing, I came up with one, it was simple. It's like one, two, that was my anchor statement. You know, and so trying to get players to come up with something that, that they can go to. It's like a, you know, it's no different than a mantra or people that are meditating and have some, you know, focal point or or uh, sound that they that they make. But it's really important to uh, to have that. Um, and, you know, the the audio programs, I think um I think it's in the book. One of the things that changed my career was finding an audio a cassette tape back then in a mall in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and on one side of the cassette was um, positive affirmations. And on the other side was subliminal messages uh, to, you know, these beta beats or whatever, bin- binomial beats and stuff. Um, and I bought it. And I listened to that thing every day and I, I know I brainwashed myself. I, I pitched 44 innings, gave up five runs, had walked five guys, um, got put on, that's when I got put on the roster and went to spring training and, and made the team. But I can still repeat some of those um, affirmations. Now my body, this was 1985. My body responds with ease and flexibility to my mental commands. My movements are smooth and rhythmic. Mm. I listened to that. So, so when I got to the Red Sox, I was like, I got to make a program that people can listen to that, um, uh, you know, goes through the mental tracks to help keep them occupied on bus rides, on plane rides, to just fill up that, that emptiness that we have that gets focused on negatives and you know, bad outcomes or the worst case scenario. So I still make them for athletes. Now when I work with them, we do a imagery program or whatever they want to do. But um, I, I was a big imagery guy, um, but I did it to music, you know, Phil Collins uh, in the air tonight was probably my favorite song to do imagery with. And um, I'm a big believer in that huge. It's, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of that song as well. And they did a survey, I think, a year or two ago um, in, in NFL locker rooms. And they, they found that that was the, the most pop, one of the most popular songs in NFL locker rooms. No kidding. Yeah. One last uh, 
question, I guess, to as we wrap up, um, we'll give it two parts, not quite the Charlie Moore three part, but what, uh, looking back, what gave you, you know, the greatest joy as a competitor and then, uh, and then in kind of the next phase, uh, what's given you the greatest joy being able to, to coach others? Mm. Um, I think the, the greatest joy in competing was to, was the journey of competition. You know, the, the feeling that you get when there's not a better feeling in the world to have pitched a major league, a complete game in the major leagues and walk off the field. I mean, that's the best you, you prepare for five, four days, you start the game, you have no idea what's going to happen. You know, you're facing major league hitters and, in some lineups that are really tough and you have no idea how many runs your team's going to score or how they're going to feel behind you. And there's all that energy and that anxiety and all that builds up and it, and it builds up over, over nine innings. And then when you get that last out, it's just, you're totally sated. It's the, it's just the best feeling. So uh, I miss that feeling. I don't miss a lot of the other stuff, but I but I miss yeah. that feeling. Um, and then pro- my greatest joy now is, is probably helping somebody feel better um, in the moment. You know, I I I don't know. You know, I had an interview with a parent uh, parents last week, and they said, well, "How successful are you?" And I said, "I don't I don't know." Um, I really don't. I, if I said that, oh, you know, I'd be lying if I said I, I knew I made a difference. I hope I make a difference. Uh, but I do know that during conversations with players that I make them feel better in that moment and what they do with it after that, you know, a lot of it's on them, but, but I think, you know, connecting with somebody in that way and helping them feel better um, to just give them a little boost you know, that's all. And that feels good. Yeah.